2: Welcome to Transforming Trauma, a safe space for survivors of childhood sexual abuse to learn about creative ways to find support, resources, and share their stories. Transforming Trauma is about love, healing, community, and also joy and possibility. Most importantly, it's about transforming our pain into power, one day at a time. I'm Eve, survivor and coach. I work with survivors in a one-on-one, sharp beyond surviving programs. I help survivors integrate their skills and support them around any obstacle or places where they're feeling stuck. I'm so excited tonight to introduce you to Bryce Kamaraf, here with me as my guest. We'll be chatting about sex education and boundaries, the role patriarchy plays in rape culture. As you may know, recently there have been a lot of discussions happening at the Boundary School about sexual abuse. And misconduct, but many of the conversations still only villainize individuals rather than holding the entire society accountable for socializing certain groups to feel entitled and superior, while others are trained to feel inferior and powerless. So without further ado, I know I say this about all my guests, but Bryce is amazing. I met her 12 years ago. We became Facebook friends official 10 years ago. And back in 2013, I... Attended my first national sex ed conference, one of the best conferences I've ever been to, for sure. And I heard she was presenting on sex ed, teaching youth about porn from a media literacy perspective. So, to tell you a bit more about Bryce, she's been a sex educator for seven years. After receiving a BA in women's studies in 2011, she went on to get her master's in human sexuality education from Widener University. And during this time, she also began working for Planned Parenthood of Delaware's Sexuality Education Training Institute, where she provided sexuality education for youth, facilitated professional training on various sex health, health topics. She also started presenting at the Sex Ed Conference on an array of topics, like I just mentioned, media literacy, pornography, adapting sex education to be inclusive of teen dating abuse and reproductive coercion. And as, as if that wasn't enough, her current position with the Department of Health and Mental Hygiene, Connecting Adolescents to Comprehensive Health edu- Care, and this program has given her the opportunity not just to help educate high school age students on sexual and reproductive health topics, but she also branches out and provides individual and small group contraceptive counseling to students in New York City. So welcome, Bryce. We are so glad to have you with us today. Hi. Thanks for having me. Of course. And like I just mentioned before we got on the call, it's been so nice to reconnect and chat with you about dating and sex and education and just thrilled to get to share your perspective with our listeners. As you know, I was hounding you for the past year or so, really eager <laughs> to to connect. So why don't we start with what made you want to become a sex educator in the first place? I, I remember so fondly when we met, the two of us talking about this, and we were, it feels like we were just babies, but we both to have this passion at a young age for this work. Yeah,
3: yeah, I definitely, I remember it. Um, and I, I feel like it did start really young. Um, I think we had similar parents in the way of like, kind of hippies in a way. Um, very open household, talked about sex, new body parts, uh, names for body parts. It wasn't something very um, taboo and not talked about in my house. So when I started going to school, I just thought it was weird that people, like, didn't know their body parts and didn't know what sex was. And things that seemed so normal to me growing up with my parents weren't really so normal for other kids. Um, And then when I got into high school, I became the person – I started doing a lot more research. Um, I was the one who wasn't afraid to buy condoms or find a place that had Plan B because if you might remember back then, you couldn't just get it from a pharmacy like you can now. Uh, It was, there was a lot more hurdles to jump through back then. So um, as I got older, it became much more about reproductive justice, um, fighting more for rights of women and dealing with homophobia, sexism, transphobia, everything that goes on in our world. Um, And then really trying to enhance people's knowledge about something that feels so taboo in a way that made me feel like it made people feel more powerful. That now you have this information and you can make whatever decisions are right for you. Um, so I really love being a sex educator. It's definitely something I feel like I was destined to do. Um, so yeah, I mean, I really, I was very happy to find out that I could actually do this for a job and get paid for it.
2: That's incredible. Well, I appreciate the explanation of, kind of where you began. I didn't know that about your family life and. I just think that that's such a fascinating topic, just kind of how parents talk about sex to kids. I know I have a niece and nephew now, and I'm just literally dying to give my niece this book I got from Planned Parenthood, but I, I know it's not, she's not at the right age yet, but I'm just so excited because I think that it's such an important opportunity to not not need to wait until your kid is sexually active, but to start having those conversations when they're really young. Cause they obviously are discovering their body parts and have questions, and I, I yeah. think that too, it's it's a big, um, it's a really big deal that so many families miss that opportunity. And I'm sure you have a lot of, a lot to say on that. But I wanted to yeah a tiny bit. We were you going
3: to say something? Oh no! All I was going to say was that I agree, and um, I wonder: Are you talking about um, the books for like the ones that were written for children?
2: Yes, yes, I think it's like... Yeah, I honestly,
3: I think they're great. And when I got to meet the, I, now I'm, of course, I'm blanking on her name. Do you remember her, the author's name? No, I can picture the cover, but I'll put it in
2: the show notes so that people
3: listening can get Yeah, because she's wonderful, and she's written so many, oh, I'm blanking on it so bad, not so bad, but all the books, like, um, It's Not the Stork, and It's Perfectly Normal, and, um... Oh, it's gonna bother me. But so she she's also spoken at the conference before at the national sex ed conference, and it was so great to hear the way that she explains like sex in the books that like even a child could understand. Like it's a special hug between two people that uh, where the penis goes in the vagina, and then sometimes it equals a baby. And it's like I think kids can get that, you know, special hug. <laughs> And it doesn't have to talk about people necessarily being married or having, you know, anything to do with that. But if they're asking specifically where babies come from, like, I think that's a pretty descriptive answer. Absolutely. And I'll just say
2: briefly that when I was working with the homeless recently, we had Planned Parenthood educators come at least once a month and give a talk. And we always framed the workshops as not just for parents, because not everyone was a parent, but to everyone has a young person in their life and just to kind of expand the idea of who our responsibility is as adults in terms of like taking ownership over the young people in our lives so really making sure that everyone is you know it takes a village so it's not just on the teachers or the health educators we all have a, a way to reach people um, so on that note yeah. you and I are you know social worker health educator people and we were talking about how we neither of us got so much education about child sexual abuse in our training, and I was curious why you think that this was left out, in your opinion.
3: Yeah, honestly, I, I've thought a lot about it because I think the, the world of sexual assault, I, I usually it's framed as sexual assault prevention, as if, like, no one's ever been assaulted in the classrooms that we go into, but um, the idea that sexual assault prevention and sex education are two separate things. It's framed that way in a lot of, like, the circles that I've been in, And it seems to do a disservice to everyone by framing it that way, because then we don't work as much in collaboration with each other. There isn't as much sharing between resources. And personally, I sometimes felt ill-equipped to really handle being like as trauma, like trauma-informed seems like such a buzzword sometimes, because I remember feeling like, okay, so even if I know what it means to be informed, does that mean that I know exactly what to do if there's a student who seems out of it in the classroom. Like, it could be because of this. It could be because the topic brings up things for them. But as an educator, I felt like there wasn't enough training given to, like, how to really handle that day-to-day. And part of – so what I'm saying is part of it, I feel like, is because the two camps feel disjointed, even though we're all trying to do similar – very similar work. And the other thing about it, too, is that I feel like not enough is out there. Like, I wish that there was more conversations being had. For Like, I love that you are doing this podcast. I love that this exists. Because even having a platform for people to talk about their experiences and heal, like, I can't remember things like this when I was younger. So the Internet has been very helpful. (laughs) Having people (laughs) feel strong enough to share their experiences so other people feel less alone has been really helpful. Um, but yeah, I'm not sure if uh, if the sexual assault camp and the sex education camp, uh, why they're not more intermingled, why they're not more mixed, because I wish that they were.
2: Yeah, that that's so fascinating. One thing that struck me about what you just said is something that I've, it's kind of tangentially related, but I've heard from professionals in the field that There's also a division between people who work with quote-unquote sex offenders versus victims, and that Mm -hmm. dichotomy also just blows my mind, and it's just really such a shame, like you're saying, that people work in these silos, and the only solution in my mind is to kind of weave all these issues together and to see it as a kind of holistic picture because nobody fits into one of these categories, like no educator, no, no student, no parent, like, it's all, it all seems to be part of the same recipe. And I was just also thinking while you were speaking, like, how does Me Too and Time's Up, how do those movements manifest in, like, the health education realm? I'm sure that it's coming up a lot more in, in the work that you do.
3: Yeah, it it is. And it's an interesting thing because it's not coming up as much with youth. So I work mainly in high schools now. I used to work um, more across, like, a broader range of um, ages and professions, but now it's mostly just in high schools. Um, so it's actually interesting that most of the teens that I work with don't really have much to say about it, honestly. Um, but more of the adults in my working relationships and my personal life and in, in a lot of places have a lot to say about the movements. But my main, I like, of course, on a purely feminist uh please believe people when they tell you their stories kind of angle i'm very happy that there's more um awareness there's more conversations there's more uh what's the word just visibility but then again it also when when the when the movement started it made me feel a little bit sad in the same way that feminism makes me feel a little bit sad because it still centers mostly white female experiences and in this case, starting with a lot of also, like, very affluent and rich white people's experiences just makes it feel sad. It makes it feel like they're the only people who are allowed to feel hurt, allowed to explain that something happened to them that shouldn't have happened. Like, all those things just – it just hurts me to know that, like, when women of color have been saying these things for years, since the dawn of time that people have been hurting them in these ways, it, it gets pushed under the rug. It gets silenced. But now it's talked about because of these people. Now, granted, I'm saying it's still a good thing that it's being talked about. I mm-hmm. just think it's sad that it took so long. And the other thing that I also have like a not a really um a problem with, but I get nervous about is because sometimes I hear people talking they're kind of blurring the lines in terms of talking about sexual harassment and sexual assault as if they're the same thing. Or as mm. if yeah. Yes. When someone is, is called out for, being, for harassing someone or assaulting someone or anything that is in the same vein of basically the fact that we have, um, I personally feel like, socialized people to abuse their power against others, um, it seems like the conversation gets a little muddied. Because not to say that, you know, one is worse. I mean, I do believe one is worse than the other, but I think that they're very connected. It Mm -hmm. gets complicated when people just villainize one individual, then another individual, then another individual, rather than saying this is a much larger problem, mostly perpetrated by men against mostly female-identified people, but also men as well, that they're just never getting their power checked from the time that they're little boys never being told that what they want is not the most important thing and that they should not be allowed to trample on what other people care about and feel. And especially when it comes to sex, it's just one of those things that seems like it's a a fertile ground for teaching young people in terms of the way that we teach them how to share in terms of the way that we teach them how to treat each other. Like, it just seems like, like you're talking about your niece and nephew, like this is the time to be talking about the way that we treat each other as humans, not when they're in college and you're hearing horrible stories about college sexual assault. It's like, well, this has been happening for forever. So I know that I spoke a lot of, I went on a lot of different tangents there, but my <laughs> main thing is that I feel like we're starting way too late and mm-hmm. that's what sucks. <laughs>
2: Yeah, I I couldn't agree with you more. And there's so much I want to respond to in there. There's a great article in the show notes as well about kind of who is most impacted by child sexual abuse. And there's so many people like who are marginalized who are not their stories aren't being heard, like you said. And I can also link to the the person who founded, who originally said Me Too, you know, was a woman of color, and for a while, right, who got
3: left think, off the magazine right. cover. I was
2: shocked. Yeah, so I was really glad when it finally became visible, like, where the, the movement started. And then it's, right. it seems, correct me if I'm wrong, that Time's Up was intended to be a lot more inclusive of and really address, like, a wider spectrum of people's stories. Is that Yeah, mean? I think
3: that that was the, the goal of it. I'm not sure if that's what's happening. I hope so.
2: <laughs> right. Yeah, and I also want to just emphasize that incest survivors really... You know, child sexual abuse survivors really were not part of Me Too or Time's Up because there's so many reasons why it's really difficult to say Me Too or Time's Up when when it involves family or it involves your coach or your teacher or your priest. Like the the levels of safety are, are different. and
1: so Very I like different, yeah. A lot of
2: those stories weren't getting heard. Um, so yeah. there are some leaders in the incest, child sexual abuse world who I really admire and are bringing more visibility to how we come into the conversation because it's really important that it, like it's so it's so amazing it's like you're so happy for all these people coming forward it's incredible it's empowering, and it's like not fair why did they get to get the, there's like this envy and this injustice and like
3: yeah. know, it makes
2: you feel ra- rageful that you want to come forward too you want to feel safe, so there's definitely a lot more work to do and in terms of the language you were mentioning, I get really fired up about this. Like, I agree with you. There's no hierarchy. Like, certainly harassment is still horrible. But, and even assault, to me, does not encapsulate, like, sexual violence. Like, I think of assault personally as sometimes like a one-night thing or a stranger. But so much of trauma is relational and doesn't happen just one time. Happens over weeks or months or years. So, I, I personally, like, there's, April's Sexual Assault Awareness Prevention Month, as mm-hmm. you obviously know, and I've yeah. been organizing some events, and I'm really pushing for them to call it sexual violence because I feel so strongly about being in- inclusive, and it seems like that... i don't, Do you come across things like that in your work, like, around language? I'm, I'm sure I'm
3: a survivor who's super
2: sensitive to language. Yeah.
3: I mean, when I used to do more work on college campuses and we used to do the SAM events, like, it was much more um it felt much more activisty in a way than it does now. Like for most of the things that we do in high school, it feels like maybe this is coming from the administration or coming from I'm not sure. And also I want to mention, I didn't mention this at the beginning, but that I'm not speaking directly for the Department of Health as like a, a voice for them. I'm just speaking for myself as someone who works for them, that it doesn't feel like um sexual violence is something that is put at the forefront of a lot of the work that we do, it seems like it's something that feels almost like an afterthought a lot, even though I have a lot of students who, when I'm doing one-on-one counseling, when I'm talking to them alone, do share experiences that are exactly what we're talking about today. Um, And the fact that, like you're saying, it's not framed in, like I totally agree with you, what you're saying about the idea that it is relational And that's what I mean about villainizing certain people. Like, oh, well, it's this actor, it's this person, it's this, that. It's like, no, it could be potentially everyone taking advantage of the power and control that they have in people's lives and that the majority of younger people especially, these are people that you trust. These are people in your family. These are people, like you said, who have so much more power and influence over you, especially as a younger person. Right. So it's a way, it's a by way villainizing to, you're taking away yeah. the idea that it could be that person. But sorry, yeah.
2: Right. It's so it's so much easier to say that bad apple or that bad
3: you know, exactly. that bad
2: egg. Let's villainize that person rather than look at look in the mirror. And there's so many reasons why child sexual abuse does not get attention as like a major public health issue, even though mm-hmm. I have so much to say about this, but one of them is that I think it's just it's it's really painful. It's really difficult yeah. work to fix it's a complex issue, you know and mm-hmm. it, and we're all impl- we're all implicated in it it's yeah it's so prevalent that I think it's almost like so huge that like lift up the rock um but you started to mention about power being unchecked and the entitlement and I'm curious what you made about the on behavior and hypocrisy I understand that that's kind of focusing in on, on that one story, but I'm curious yeah. what you might have to say
3: about it. Sure, yeah. I thought it was interesting um, to, to think about him because when the information started coming out about the incident that happened, I remember first feeling really sad because, you know, of course, watching people that you either think are really funny or really interesting or really just great creators under a light that maybe you never saw them under before, it sucks. It's it's not a great feeling to watch people that you genuinely think that you like and know from their uh, TV shows or their movies or their um, comedy specials to think that the person is not this person that you thought that they were. But at the same time also completely – I felt very torn because I could see both sides of what happened or from what I read and what everyone was talking about, that even though it clearly, I'm always going to believe the person who is talking about their experience from the victim perspective, because it's just, I, I feel like people are not believed enough, especially when it's your experience. You can't deny someone else's experience, even if you don't feel like it was the same for you. But I also was feeling very conflicted about the fact that I I think that we, as a culture, have really failed male-identified people by not pushing and forcing, in a way, to make sure that they understand emotional intelligence, to really get this idea that reading social cues and understanding that taking a step back from a situation is never a bad thing taking things slow is not a bad thing like this going against all these uh like stereotypical machismo like fight as hard as you can to get what you want messages is something that I feel like as a culture we've failed all people not just male identified people but that's why it was so conflicting for me because on the one hand it's so sad to hear another experience by another person listen I almost felt like I was reading something that I've heard friends say that I've had right. personal experiences with Absolutely. that it's just like this has happened so many times but yet to also feel on the other hand it's like we failed everyone in this case I I don't want to villainize one specific person because I feel like it's it's everyone so right. and that I was my feel opinion. like the conversation.
2: Comfort- yeah. <laughs> thank you for sharing that and I feel like sexuality and enthusiastic consent, like, these are not even really part of the conversation. I have sort of more progressive social work friends and my news feeds, but I don't feel like in the national level there's so much talk about not just, like, consent and social cues. To me, that's kind of like, you know, human decency. I don't mean to...
3: Sound no, I like, agree. But that's what I'm saying. But why it's is like, that not something that is... like Everyone, why?
2: <laughs> why,
3: why aren't we talking about, like, pleasure and like what people
2: want and I don't know yeah. I just it's hard to it's hard to imagine and yet I don't want to last thing I want to do is come across like I don't get it or like how stupid because it's like no we are failing people from a very young age by not giving them the, the skills to have these conversations like sex and these conversations are difficult and awkward but we got to start somewhere and it doesn't we don't start in our 30s or later it has to start right.
3: really hot. <laughs> but you're right. Um, why not Why not completely just flip the whole – like I can't understand why pleasure is such a scary topic for education, for schools, for – it's like they don't want to touch it with a 10-foot pole. I don't get it. <laughs> this thought that, that they're going to somehow let children know – that touching their bodies or letting someone else touch their bodies is something that can feel good. Like, do they think that people don't know that already? Like babies know that. Come on. Right. So so I agree with you. If pleasure was something that was more mm -hmm. central to our discussions, maybe it would be easier to con to convey the fact that if something doesn't feel pleasurable to you, that you are in the position of not needing to only be the only one to know that, that your partner or that anyone involved in that experience should also be keyed into that, that everyone's pleasure should be number one, not one person, not only this side. It seems very unequal. And that's yeah. what I think gives into a lot of this.
2: Yeah. I'm smiling big over here. <laughs> um, so unfortunately we're, we're running out of time, and I, I hope – oh, sorry, yes. <laughs> Keep the conversation going another time, and just we'll talk to the chat with you. And is there anything else that we didn't get to cover that you'd you'd like to share as we wrap up?
3: No, the only thing I was going to say is that I just feel like I'm really happy that I'm, like, grateful and happy about the work that you're doing and that Transforming Trauma is doing because I definitely am not the expert at all in uh, – trying to help people heal from past experiences that they've had um but I do feel like the reason another reason why I got into education is I think that knowledge is power what you do with that knowledge is of course going to always be your choice but knowing that there are resources out there to help people knowing that you're not alone in your experiences like those are things that have helped me in my personal life and I hope also help my students so I'm very grateful that um this podcast exists, that this organization exists. So I just wanna thank you. Oh,
2: thank you so much for being a guest today and for, for being a colleague in the field. Your work is incredible and it's it's so important and like a lot of health education, social work roles, it's, it, it can be thankless 'cause you're you're doing you're doing your calling, your you're doing your passion and I'm sure you work above and beyond your hours just like joining me for this call this evening so thank you (laughs) if anyone would like to contact Bryce for education or resource related questions you can email her at b-k-o-m-a-r-o-f-f at health.nyc.gov and you can visit beyond surviving podcast and rachelgrantcoaching.com for more uh, more information and we'll look forward to next time thanks so much for listening take good care